From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 145 with guest Brent Ozar, recorded Monday, January 11th, 2010. Run As Radio is produced each week by Plop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio, and with me, as always, my co-host, Greg Hughes. Hey, everyone. Richard, how are you today? I am well, sir. You know, no rest for the wicked. Lots of shows, lots of great things going on. Yeah, there's all kinds of interesting things to talk about. Absolutely. So we should just dive right in, because I think this is going to be one of those shows that doesn't give up easily. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. All right. Our guest today is Brent Ozar. Brent is the SQL Server expert with Quest Software and a Microsoft SQL Server MVP. Brent has a decade of broad IT experience, including management of multi-terabyte data warehouses, storage area networks, and virtualization. In his current role, Brent specializes in performance tuning, disaster recovery, and automating SQL Server management. Previously, Brent spent two years at Southern Wine and Spirits, a Miami-based wine and spirits distributor. There's some fun for you. He has experience conducting training sessions, has written several technical articles, and blogs prolifically at www.brentozar.com. He's a regular speaker at Pass Events, editor-in-chief of SQLServerpedia.com, and the co-author of the book, Professional SQL Server 2008 Internals and Troubleshooting. Welcome, Brent. Hey, Brent. Hey, how's it going, guys? After that long intro, we're probably out of time. Yeah, okay. And thanks very much for coming on Run, Run As Radio. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Uh, that wasn't too bad. It sounds like you've done some cool stuff. Uh, uh, Southern Wine and Spirit sounds like an interesting company to work for. You know, that was really a lot of fun. I went in there as, as really their full-time production, their first full-time production DBA ever. They had uh, uh, something like 10,000 employees worldwide. Um, and, you know, you walk into an environment that's never had a DBA before. It was it was a lot of fun to, to go in there and make some big performance differences and uh, then be able to take over the SAN administration as well. That's, SAN administration is one of those classic black boxes that people just see and they go, I don't know what's going on inside there, but... You know, I doubt it's any good. If you can get someone to let you inside, then you get to see all the coolness. Yes, yes. And if you're on the outside, nobody is ever going to let you into there. So it was a lot of fun to get into that world. Yeah, heavily protected stuff. Uh, but, of course, these days things are getting weird. People are putting giving their databases to other people and letting them run them, which, you know, the DBA and me just cringes every time that conversation comes around. You know, isn't it funny how we... Us DBAs used to be in a real position of power in that when somebody wanted to deploy an app or when somebody wanted to choose their hardware or, you know, specify their RAID arrays, whatever it was, they had to come to the DBA and the DBA would give them a thumbs up or thumbs down or say, no, you can't put your data on RAID 5 or, you know, no, you can't write CLR in the database. And this it's such an interesting time that that power really seems to be shifting, that the the DBA isn't uh, the number one guy anymore. And I think the, the cloud developments that we're seeing, especially in, with uh, the, the new uh, Azure stuff that's come out uh, in full commercial licensing on February 1st, that's, that's really starting to open some DBA eyes on who's really driving this bus and, you know, who's really in the backseat these days. You know, I've, I've also talked to uh, organizations, I've done a lot of performance tuning work and the like as well, where they literally had gone around their IT department. They had farmed the work out to an ISP or something to that effect just because they found it frustrating to work internally and expensive. Yeah. 
you know, the accounting model that folks are using these days, they're billing back their IT services to individual business units. And the guy, and the guy's looking at the number and going, you know what? I can get this for cheaper. You got it. I, 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 I can't emphasize enough how much I see that. We, we started getting so good in IT at building people back and doing chargebacks. And I was with uh, one global financial uh, firm and we had our billable rates sent out to all our mid-managers, and they said, you know what, how about if we compete with you? How about if we go out to, you know, such and such a company and we can do it cheaper? Yeah. You know, and now with the with the advent of SQL Azure and a lot of the cloud-based solutions that are out there, people really all of a sudden have this competition, and the developers are driving this. The developers are saying, hey, you know what, I have a choice. I can either go to my DBA and beg for a database, and he's not going to give me any kind of access, or I can just go talk to the network guys, open up a port on the firewall so I can go talk out to Microsoft servers, and I can start developing right now with a credit card and, you know, 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, and off I go. And it's, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is to ask permission. And we've done a couple shows in the past on sort of the evolution of the DBA and, and sort of the, in a way, isn't the, the whole role of the DBA has really changed over time, but it's been kind of black box too. I, I can tell you, I'll, I'll just say for, from personal experience that, you know, having to hire DBAs or work with DBAs in the past, there's been some that are great, and there's been a lot that I just really didn't want to spend any time around. Is, it, is, is the DBA a member of the team now, or is, is that phase over, and are we really looking to the cloud, and we're really looking for service services to be provided more? What do you think is going to happen? You know, that's a, Buck Woody had an excellent blog post about that, that really the DBA needs to change their role to be a data steward. And no matter where the database is at, it's really the DBA's role to, to get in there and help make life easier for the developers. And as folks move to Azure, the, some of the things that they're used to being able to get, like query execution plans or even just know who else is running a query, you know, they can't get with Azure's built-in tools. And it's up to the DBA to start working with these developers and saying, all right, let me look at your queries. Let me look at how your data is structured. Let yeah. me help you figure out how to do it faster you know, and your, my my knowledge of of how I work with tables, how I work with queries, is going to become even more important to you over time. Um, if I can really add that value, but if I can't add value as a DBA, man, nobody's going to come and talk to me. So now we we really need to turn into somebody who's serving the, the our customers, our developers, instead of being some kind of gatekeeper where we're going to just lock things down and tell them no. Yeah. So it could be could be the kind of situation where the new technology almost forces the hand, if you will. And I tell uh, DBAs, they, if they're smart, go learn Azure now so that you can at least offer it as a tool in your toolkit. Because sooner or later, when it's really going to pick up is when the project managers start hearing about it from some of these developers who are playing around with it. And the developers are going to say to the project managers, hey, you know, I can have this database up and running in 15 minutes for $100 a month if you get a company credit card out. You know, let's just go make the magic happen. And it really is up to the DBA to be able to field questions about it and say, yes, I've worked with that. Here are some of the pros and cons. Here are some of the things that you may not be aware of that you want to consider before you, you know, throw your next enterprise app on there. And it's not just SQL Azure. I, I, I mean, from my perspective, maybe as a developer, SQL Azure makes me a little nervous because it's not exactly SQL Server. I do have to learn new things to work with it. Yes. Yes. If it was fully SQL compatible, I think you'd see a whole lot more people 
throwing applications onto it faster. But uh, we looked at it briefly at Stack Overflow. The guys started asking, uh, you know, hey, could we use this as a backup database? You know, in case our main database server died, could we just do, say, log shipping or database mirroring over to Azure and then fail over to it? Well, not only does Azure not support those kinds of technologies, but even the, the basic queries that we were running at Stack Overflow, Azure didn't support that either, things like full text search. Um, or CLR. So, you know, it's because you have to limit yourself to a subset of SQL Server, I think it really f- works best on brand new ground up from scratch projects. Right. Um, where we can, if we build our apps for Azure, then we can kind of limit our apps. And then if we decide we want to use it with full blown SQL Server later on, it's relatively easy to make that switch. Whereas it's really kind of painful to switch back from, uh, from C- full blown SQL Server to Azure. SQL Azure is the subset. I guess the alternative approach to this then is just throwing up uh, a, a virtual machine in the cloud a la Amazon's EC2. I always yeah. laugh when you say throwing up a virtual machine. <laughs> I, just, I just wanted to mention that. Yes, regurgitating. Yeah, no, it's and that that is an interesting option. That, uh, if you really go full blown into EC2, it, it gives you some interesting options, or or any like a Terramark virtual SQL Server provider. Once you start log shipping your databases to the cloud, like I like to do data disaster recovery with Amazon S3, which is really a file server that sits in the cloud, and you can pay by the meg of traffic in and out, and it's pretty cost effective. Um, So that if I know my data center catches fire, there's an earthquake, massive power outage, whatever, I've got a recent copy of my database up in the cloud. And I can I can throw up, so to speak, a SQL Server uh, up in Amazon EC2 and start restoring those da- databases relatively quickly. That's a flexible way to do it. You probably don't want to pay for SQL Server in the cloud full time in EC2. It gets a little expensive. It can be yeah. anywhere from around 800 bucks a month to rapidly approaching three, four thousand bucks a month. Um, and it really doesn't have any of the the high availability or, or uh, disaster recovery stuff that Azure has built in. You're, you kind of have to roll your own there too, and you, you're going to end up needing a full time DBA if you uh, choose to go in the cloud. But this brings up an interesting uh, point too. DBAs now have the ability to say that SQL Server costs exactly this much per hour, whether you're running on Azure, whether you're running on EC2, Terramark, whatever it is. I can say that a given database server with a certain amount of power and storage is going to cost me, say, $15 an hour. Now, if I can optimize queries or if I can optimize storage to cut that cost down, I can show a really clear ROI as a DBA. And I've had clients come to me and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking at a bill next month for uh, for Amazon EC2 of seven, dollars $8,000 for my SQL servers. What can you do to help me drive that bill down? And suddenly now us DBAs are actually able to put a price tag on what we're doing and say, hey, look, I just saved you $4,000 a month. Now let's talk about what I'm worth to you. Right. Yeah, it's interesting to finally get hard numbers around this. It's almost like the cloud offerings have created a, a marketplace, so at least we know what the real values are. Yes, yes. I I really believe that um, it, it's going to have to get more robust because right now when we look at these bills for how much comes back, whether it's SQL Azure or whether it's EC2, it's kind of a mystery as to what that money is going towards. You know, what, is there a certain query that if I fixed it, you know, it would make my life so much easier? Those tools aren't out there right now, and that's where I think DBAs can really come in, uh, come in handy. If we start building things like that to say, you know, this particular application and this query, if you tune this, it's going to save you $400 this month. 
that's fantastic. Yeah, interesting point that you literally could put a price tag on your optimization efforts. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've always been able to say I dropped a, you know, this hourly job that, that used to take six, six hours overnight to import all our data warehouse data. I was able to optimize it and get it down to one hour. But who really cares if you already own the server, right? It right. doesn't really make much of a difference. Yeah, and the other side of that would be optimization, say, on queries for websites. So you, you know, improve the, the site performance by 20%, and, and that correlates to a revenue increase. Yes, yes. So whether it's both revenues or expenses, you know, suddenly now DBAs can put real price tags on things. And that's something that if we utilize it right, can be a real big sale, real uh, big pushing uh, selling point for us as DBAs. It's a little early to tell right now, but what's your gut on it is possible to run your infrastructure less expensively than the cloud at certain scales? Yeah, I think I think at the point where you're working with multiple departments, if you say you're in a you're in a company and it's just big enough that you've got different departments, you probably want to go ahead and have your infrastructure done internally, and you probably want to have a shared staff to do it. So, for example, if you're a small company and you've got one developer and maybe one network guy, and they all work together on the same two or three applications that that do your website sales or, or handle incoming applications. That's a relatively small uh, pool of infrastructure, and it probably doesn't pay for you to go build out a cluster, for you to go get a SAN, for you to build all this reliability um, and scalability into your infrastructure. Right. At that point, you're better off having somebody else manage that for you. But as soon as you scale to you've got two teams that are both using, uh, whether it's SQL Server infrastructure or whatever uh, infrastructure you choose to use, at that point, you probably want to consider bringing it in-house. And it, that same, I have that same discussion when I talk to project managers. So if I have a, a, a big enterprise and one particular group is going after a, a new application that they're going to build with SQL Server, I'll say, okay, do you have anybody else in the company who's sharing the same technology stack? And if you're not, if you're looking at building this up from the ground up, then maybe it is, maybe a cloud makes sense for you until you can get this kind of reliability skills and, and scalability skills in-house. Almost sounds like you're saying that Azure or cloud computing is maybe geared best toward the small or small to mid-sized business. Yeah, and I, I think um, I don't. I'm probably out and alone on this, but I, I think I'm. Uh, well, of course, I'm out and alone on a lot of opinions. So I'm kind of used to that, but <laughs> I think that we're one of the ways it really makes sense. Um, for example, let's say that you're a you're an enterprise uh, software company. Let's say BlackBerry Enterprise Server. The thing runs on SQL Server. But you really don't want anybody playing around with that database. You don't want anybody touching it. Um, you don't want anybody dealing with the management of it. But you can't convince your clients to let you host their SQL servers. In that particular case, it might make sense to offer hosted solutions on Azure, let Microsoft maintain the, the things like the infrastructure that you may not be that good at, you may sure. not be able to, to uh, build out the redundant Internet connections, generator-powered SQL servers, all that. Um, but you can pull that off if you end up letting Microsoft host your SQL Server stuff for you. And then it also, if you if you set the security right, you can build it so that your clients can't go in and break your schema. You know, I work for Quest Software, and in a perfect world, nobody would ever touch our repositories. You know, we build these products that use SQL Server repositories for performance man performance management, configuration, mm-hmm. security, whatever. And mm-hmm. you just know that we've got those clients out there who will go out 
and change the way the schema works in order to build their own reports, in order to extend it. But then when something breaks, we're the ones who have to deal with support, and that can get a little painful. Sure, that's true. You can have you can have some real severe supportability problems, can't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I think there's certain strata here where the cloud makes sense, and maybe going back in house makes sense too. That, uh, and you sort of hinted at these thresholds, Brent. Obviously, when things are small. Uh, the costs are small in the cloud, relatively speaking, and the startup costs of, of running a real SQL server aren't trivial. Buying a decent machine, the licenses for SQL server, which seem to be only getting more expensive. Uh, you know, that's a big chunk that you can offset a long time with the cloud. But I, one of these magic thresholds seems to be the reliability threshold. When I now need high availability and I'm looking at a thing like a cluster and, and that kind of infrastructure, and that's a big, price tag that's a quarter million dollars worth of gear and a substantial chunk of skills suddenly that's a year's worth of service out of the cloud yeah yes and if you know that you're you can contain your data sizes um that's where it also starts starts to get a little uh, because right now you know with azure the databases are limited to either one gig or 10 gig right and if you control the application and you tightly control how much you're putting into that database you can do okay. You can contain a lot of databases under 10 gigs. And let's say that you've got rock star developers who really know their stuff, and they decide to build their own sharding mechanism, which is the ability to put data inside different databases, and your application knows where they live at any given time. So let's say that we were doing uh, sales. We decide to put a different country in each different database, and I know when I want sales from France, I go query the France database. When I want sales from Italy, I query the Italy database. But it gets a little trickier again when one particular company, country, like, say, the U.S. or Mexico, has sales greater than 10 gigs worth of data. Then we have to go out and shard inside that country again. And that's something that only really good developers are good at building that in a way that scales really well. And if you decide to go the cloud route, all you really just did was you traded infrastructure costs for developer costs. Right. Right, you right. need better developers in order to, to handle Azure's weaknesses right now, um, whereas if you decide to throw everything in a single database, you can get by with much cheaper programmers, but then you have to go approach those quarter-million-dollar investments in SQL Server. Yeah, there's no easy choices here. If this is simple, everybody doing it, right? <laughs> yeah, I, and I think it's like virtualization was you know, five, ten years ago. The virtualization back then was this really niche case where very few people saw the ROI in it, and it was kind of black magic. You know, there were a lot of things you had to work around that didn't quite work right out of the box. You had to hold your breath and, you know, put your left foot out the window when you did certain things. And now it's any any mid-level manager can just throw the CD in, get uh, either Hyper-V right. or VMware up and running, be off, off and going. People are talking about virtualizing their entire data center because it just got so reliable and people bundled in so many features. Now we have this level of expectation where we're using a virtualization product that, oh, it's going to do all these things for us. It's going to have these fancy graphs to show us what our CPU use is, what the most um, processor-intensive server is, and why. We don't have that stuff in the cloud yet, but I bet as we get more and more down the road and the cloud offers more and more uh, potential, offers more of what SQL Server's native commands offer, things like full text, things like backup, database mirroring, log shipping, um, as we get more of those features in, I think people are going to get more comfortable with it, especially if we can blow past that 10-gig limit. And I think it's going to have long-term the same uh, adoption curve that virtualization had. I think there's going to be a point. Now, there's always going to be holdouts, right? There's always going to be the guys who say, 
I have healthcare data, I have financial data. I was speaking in Germany and uh DBAs there were just like, no, we can't we can't go to the cloud until our uh until our uh, uh representatives, our, our government decide to change the laws about privacy. And that really shuts technology conversations down right there. Yeah, it's just over yeah, I, I deal with that on a yeah. daily basis, so I can I can relate to that. I you know, I know my security better than anybody else and nobody could possibly keep data as secure as I do. And then, of course, you go in there and do an audit, and you go, well, you realize <laughs> you've got blank passwords, you've got people who haven't changed their passwords in six months, um, and you've got these big gaping holes in your infrastructure, and your encryption keys are stored here on, a, on your web server. You know, so it's, it's, it's all a balancing act. And until everybody gets more comfortable with what security really exists out in the cloud, that's just going to take some time. And that's a topic in and of itself. Now, you, you, you mentioned... Uh Oh, sorry. I'm having a brain fart. Brandon, this is an edit point. <clears throat> I had a good question, too. <laughs> <laughs> and it got away from you. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Right. Segging in. S- stepping back stepping back a couple minutes here, back to virtualization. One of the changes that took place in the virtualization world, um, in addition, I think, to the ones you've mentioned, is that the cost of doing virtualization, and even just for the virtualization infrastructure itself, really came down in price. Do you think that'll happen in, in the cloud computing world? Yeah, I, as long as we get competition, um, which is, you know, one of the big, uh, you know, nervous things right now, I don't think there's really enough competition for it to be healthy yet. Uh, I really liked Amazon's RDS, uh, which is their basically MySQL in the cloud. You can pay a fee and you get the full-blown power of MySQL in the cloud. All of it, all, all the commands that, uh, that they support, you get full-blown in the cloud. Now, if we had that in the cloud with Microsoft SQL Server, where I could whip out my credit card and say, here's all of the power of SQL Server and it's going to cost me this much a month, or I can get it nearly free, but just have you know much less capabilities. Then I think it would it would adopt a lot faster. I don't know that the SQL Server is going to get a whole lot fast or a whole lot cheaper in the cloud than it is right now. And this is just my conjecturing. I don't have any kind of inside information there. But ten bucks a month for SQL Server, even at just one gig, or a hundred bucks a month for ten gigs, right. that's really attractive to people who don't have their own infrastructure. Sure. That's, I mean, that's, you're down to what, you know, I pay almost that for my internet bill. I pay more than that for my cell phone bills for, for, uh, me and my significant other. So it's, that's a pretty attractive price for project managers. You know, the one thing you just don't see is anything along the lines of TPCC numbers around SQL Azure or any of these cloud-based databases. Yeah, and at the instant you try it, I did disk performance benchmarks in Amazon EC2 because I just wasn't getting the SQL Server performance I expected. I was right. really disappointed. And uh, so I posted my findings on the EC2 forums and asked for help. And sure enough, I got back uh, several answers saying, well, you have to do this first. You have to erase the entire hard drive. Then you have to, you know, go ahead and once it's all, you've written files across to all of it. Well, then you need to use elastic block stores. And there were all these, these other uh, weird things you had to do. And you know what? It's really no different than when we go out and we buy a new server from HP, Dell, IBM, whatever. If you try and just throw Windows on there, throw SQL Server and try and run a TPCC, your results are going to suck. Um, you have to make all these preparations in advance. You have to set up your disks a certain way. You have to use partition alignment if you're using Windows 2003. All these things you have to do. Um, and really, I think if you're going to go after serious performance in Azure or Amazon EC2, RDS, whatever it is, 
you're going to have to tweak a whole lot of knobs. And in the example of Azure, you're going to have to spread load across a whole lot of servers, and you're going to have to know which servers they're living on. Because if you go and create five databases, that doesn't necessarily mean they're they're on five different servers. Right. And the more that you put into that, the more you pursue those benchmarks, you know, how how really related is that to your real-world work? Because if you write your application, the bottleneck is probably in your sharding code, figuring out where the data lives. Um, Because you've also got to put some robust logging in there, because what happens when just one of your 10 databases goes offline temporarily? You better be able to handle that. Well, and from an IT perspective, this sharding code is the worst kind of code. It's it's not production-related code per se. It's not actually business rules or anything. And you know, sooner or later, this will be replaced. Yeah, yeah. And and it's so tightly tied into your application logic because you're sharding by something business-related. Right. You know, sales. And and what happens when you try to, to change that? Heck, Microsoft SQL Server 2005 introduced partitioning. I was so excited for that, you know, because it's really like sharding inside of the database server. It's great. It has a lot of advantages, but I don't see that many people using it for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is when you decide to change that, how you've sharded your data, how you partitioned it, man, you better better take a long drink and be ready for a long outage because you're going to have to move your data around and nobody can be touching it while you do it. And that's, you know, if our whole idea with going to the cloud is high availability, performance, lots of uptime, and we talk about now we have, when we change our sharding, we're going to have to move everything around. Ooh, that's ugly. Well, and the perception to the customer these days is I don't have to worry about performance anymore. The cloud will take care of that. You just pay more and it'll go faster. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I think some of that is uh, because, we, you know, the whole Gartner hype cycle thing about about how adoption changes. I think that we're at that point where people see all this hype that the cloud is going to fix everything and you just pay more when you want more, but people don't understand that because of just a few technical limitations right now, you know, sharding being the big one, it doesn't matter how much you pay, it's going to come down to how much skills you have in order to make the thing work right. And sooner or later, those skills either have to exist at our level, the independent developers out there, or it has to exist at Microsoft's level. Microsoft has to build in sharding so that we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. And if they do that, then people can just get out their credit cards and go wild and crazy with the speed. Yeah, I think we're still, you know, going back to Gartner's terms, we're still waiting for the to hit the bottom of that trough of disillusionment. <laughs> yeah. You know. I don't know anybody who, it's funny, I don't know anybody who's used Azure who's disillusioned yet. You know, the, the people who have, have gone in and used it because they've been so educated, developers have said, oh, I'm not going to go use that because of blank. I'm not going to go use it because of, you know, I have to do sharding or there's a 10 gig limit. Right. But the people who have used it, knowing what the limits are and who've had solutions that, that worked inside those limits have been pretty happy. So it, I'm curious to see what the curve looks like. I don't think, I don't know if we're going to hit that curve this year or if that's going to be next year. Well, and it's really, as long as you're sticking with Greenfield apps, you already don't have a, a, you know, that huge commitment that would, you know, drop your to, to your knees right off the bat. Uh, but the same token, I don't think we're seeing massive Azure success stories. You know, the, the, the Twitters of Azure haven't shown up yet. And that's where you're going to see that real pain when someone actually pushes out the cloud to its limits and bangs into that. Yeah, boy, you, the, the magic word you said there, Twitter, that was so eloquent there because, you know, Twitter didn't know what the adoption curve was going to be. So, yeah. of course, they built their stuff 
thinking that, oh, we're, we're going to fit fine inside of, you know, known technologies. We're just going to be able to use, you know, MySQL off the rack and everything's going to work great. And I bet right now there's developers out there building applications on Azure thinking they're just fine inside the 10 gig limit. Yeah. You know, or they're just fine with this many uh, processor cycles per month. And all it takes is a few bad queries or one, you know, link from dig or one link from slash dot. Their app goes crazy. And they go, oh my God, I can't write a check fast enough to get my way out of my way out of the trouble that I'm in. Or and more relevantly, they don't want my check. You know, they, there's nothing to buy here to save me. Yeah, yes, yeah. You saw that with Twitter. I mean, they, what was it? They got the twenty million dollars in market cap, and for months they were still going down every day. Yeah, well, just because you got the money doesn't mean there is actually a simple solution to the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so sad, but. Yeah, the key to that is knowing what the limits are before you go in and develop and working with other developers who are playing around with it. You know, you're not reinventing the wheel here. There's a lot of us who play with it um, and who've seen the pros and cons, and, and it's easy to go out and get help, find other people uh, who can talk to you about it, who know the limits. Well, I think this is where the cloud guys are the most vulnerable because the most, the largest number of people you're going to encounter are the folks who are going to say, I know how to do that on SQL Server, run your own infrastructure. Yeah. You got $20 million? Dude, you could build yourself a heck of a for infrastructure for this in a big hurry that is is a much more known solution than where you're trying to go with the cloud. Yeah. And it, I, I, some of that is, is probably due, too, to Microsoft's BizSpark program or WebSpark programs that now you can even get free licensing for your web business for the first three years. Right. So if you're going to roll the dice... Why not use SQL Server and, you know, if you're going to really expect success, why not just build it with SQL Server and be done with it, um, you know, and walk away from it. But that's a, that's a tough call for a lot of small businesses. Yeah, I got to think that at some point here, and of course, this is just happening now, you know, we're interv- we're recording now in January and, and you know, Azure's really going to go live next month. You would think that Microsoft will incorporate Azure as part of the BizSpark offering at some point. Wouldn't that be interesting too to say that, that would be very you cool. know you can have an unlimited amount of, of queries and storage for your web app, knowing that what what's the best case scenario? You get wildly popular, and after three years, I'm going to start charging you the bill for it. Yeah, yeah. There are worse. These are again are good problems to have to get to a point where you know the, you've done this work as well, Brent. The fun part about performance tuning is you're generally dealing with people who have good problems. You know, if nobody was using <laughs> this app, it would work great. Yes, so, worked know, on my machine. Yeah, congratulations. You know, you have this good problem of so many people want to use your app that it's failing from its own success. Yeah, yeah. And usually the people at that point also have enough money because the customers are, you know, coming in, kicking down the doors, or investors are kicking down the doors saying, how can we make this work? Yeah. You geeks, go ahead, get into a room and figure out the right answer. Yeah, make it work for us and everything will be fine. Yeah, here's your coffee and your pizza. Get to town. <laughs> <laughs> Brent, we're, we're about out of time here. Any final words, places people should be looking to learn more about SQL in the cloud? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, we're, we've blogged a lot about it on my site, brentozar.com, and we also have uh, 40 syndicated bloggers over at sqlserverpedia.com. We've got a lot of guys doing interesting stuff with the cloud, using it with SQL Server integration services, for example, um, to push data into their sync data back and forth between their own servers and, uh, and Azure just for disaster recovery use, or for to, to let people do public querying. We had uh, posted my entire Twitter cache uh, up into an Azure database so people could play around with it with SQL Server Management Studio. 
Um, SQLServerpedia.com is a great place to go to find out new things that are happening right now with Azure and uh, stay posted uh, with a lot of new developments as they come out. Cool. Excellent. Brent, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Run As Radio.